Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Let's share in God's good word together. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able... All things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You know these. You may not know that you know them, but I bet you do. We'll see. Here's a test. God closes a door. He opens a, yeah, you do know. Or maybe, maybe you, you've been having a hard time. Somebody says this to you, time heals all. Yeah, you know. Or maybe, you know, your mom's a little tired of you laying around the house. She looks at you and she says, God helps those who, ah, you know, Jesus didn't say any of that. Most of it's not even in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. But it's just a part of our culture. And so over the next five weeks from now until Labor Day, we're going to look at it's just not true. It's just not true. Say with me. It's just not true. So there are these simple sayings that simply, they're not true. They're not true. And so we're going to look at a number of these. Um, and today we're going to talk about the, the, the untruth that doubting is dangerous. You hear this, and people use that, of course, doubting is dangerous when you're not agreeing with them. Right? You're, it's okay for you to doubt, but not, not, if, not if you don't agree with them. No, 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 you can't, you can't doubt that. So, let's get going. As a way of introduction, sometimes we assign credit to Jesus for something he didn't say. He didn't say it all. But man, it sounds good if you put Jesus' name on it, then you have to do it. Even if I just made it up. And people, that's, by the way, that's called using the Lord's name in vain. That's what that is. So just got to get that out there. So let me ask you, did Jesus say everything happens for a? No, he didn't say that. No, he did not. And by the way, it's not true. Now, if by everything happens for a reason, you mean we have tides because the moon circles the earth and we have gravity because of the density of, of the earth. Yes, that's true. But some things happen that don't make any sense to us at all. And are not God's good or perfect will for us. Some things are terrible. And we can do great harm to people acting as if what they're going through, what you're going through, is just, you know, just nothing God's doing. You just need to get on board. No, there are terrible things that happen in our world. And we ought to question it when it does. Why is that? What's going on? You see, we all have things that we believe, don't we? We even have things that we believe that we tell others and we count on. We count on them. But we don't ever think about them. They just are. Just take them at face value, even if they're not true. 
This last week, um, one of my very favorite authors, I won't use his name, um, but he's a, a worldwide speaker, a great author, and, and he was basically saying this uh, in a promotional video. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Well, yes, don't be afraid is all through the Bible. That's exactly right. Just believe. Just believe what? Exactly what are we supposed to believe? It sounds great, but I, that doesn't help me. I don't know what to do with that. Believe So our founder, John Wesley, I want you to understand this. As United Methodists, we have a long history of using our mind, of actually thinking things through and living out our faith. John Wesley said, when I was young, I was so sure of everything. In a few years, having been mistaken a thousand times, I was not half so sure of most things as I was before. At present, I am hardly sure of anything but what God has revealed to men. Anybody over 50? Amen right? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I was sure about stuff when I was 16. I can tell you how the world should be run. Not now. I mean, it is complex and complicated both. So when our beliefs are questioned though, right, we can become defensive, right? it's, It's not just a question. All of a sudden we have our personhood involved somehow. Somehow our ego gets wrapped up in it. So we become defensive or we become even worse offended or even worse combative or my favorite withdrawn. I can't tell you how many conversations I'm not in because I just don't want to have them. And I would like to say that's mature, but sometimes I'm just tired. I don't, I don't want to be in the middle of that conversation because they're mean. People can be mean when the stuff doesn't go their way, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. And maybe, maybe you're there too, but, but that's not a great witness either. Sometimes we have to be involved even things that are difficult, even when we don't want to. Um, I, I found this idea, uh, this sermon series, uh, from Chantal Nye's home church in Dallas, Highland Park, United Methodist Church. One of my favorite preachers is Reverend Paul Rasmussen. And as he was going through this series uh, back earlier in the year, um, he said this, We're conditioned to believe that doubts are somehow a violation of our faith. That's not, that's not true. I mean, we, we, we feel that, but, but that's not true. And, and part of it is that we fear that if one belief turns out not to be true, then none of them are true. Isn't that sort of the fear that's behind it? Well, well, if this isn't true, then that can't be true either. Well, friends, that's not how logic works. Sometimes one thing can be true or not true, and something else can be true or not true. They're not necessarily always connected. John Wesley has a little brother. Anybody know his name? Come on, Robert, you know the answer to that. I'm just teasing. Um, Charles, yes, Charles Wesley is his little brother. Um, just a few years younger than John, and he wrote these words. Um, the reason I was picking on Robert there is because we come from a theological school. Uh, this is basically our slogan. Unite the pair so long disjoined. Knowledge and holiness. That's what vital piety is, living out your faith. Learning and holiness combined, both, and truth and love. Let all men see in those whom to thee we give thine holy thine to die and live. It cracks me up, but that's a children's prayer. But anyway... Right? I mean, that's, that's a deep children's prayer. So let me ask you. Do you ever wrestle with doubt? Do you ever wrestle with doubt? I do. I do. Now, I know some of you are like, I got to get out of here. Even my pastor doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> but, I mean, doubt, it's not dangerous, friends. It's necessary if you want to have a deep faith. It's not necessary if you want to have a kindergarten faith. Just take it on face value and just keep moving. But if you want to go deeper, if you want to grow, if you want to mature in Christ, 
you better make sense of some of this stuff so that you can stand when things get weird. So, for example, John 8, 36 says this. Many of you will know this. It's a very strong scripture in the Bible. So if the Son, Jesus, makes you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Amen. That's great. Am I the only one who has done the same sin more than once? Am I free? Or am I not free? And if I am free, why do I still struggle over here with that thing that I struggled with over there? And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and it hasn't changed. Any of you all have that in your life? You know what I find is that we're not very creative in our sinning. We're kind of one-trick ponies. We struggle here, we struggle there. Now, it's particularly challenging to me when things don't go my way. And particularly, particularly challenging when they don't go my way when it's not my fault. And that does happen. Not all the time, but it does happen. Uh, On Monday, I was driving home, and I pulled up at Penn and Coffee Creek. And and another driver pulled up right with me. I was heading uh, east. They were heading north. We stopped. Being the good Christian that I am, and only a mile from church, I waved them on. And then I went. And the young woman behind her never looked up. You know what makes that terrible? It's not my car. It's Chantel's car. My life just got a lot worse. Right? It's her baby. She loves this little car. And it's pretty, pretty new to us. Right? And so as you get closer, they, they never touch their brakes. I mean, it's the easiest claim in all the world. Right? And, and, and so the baby is ruined. Not really. We'll find out. But here's the thing. It, don't you... I, I found myself wondering, not, not is God good? I mean, I know that. But like, why? Why did that happen? I did everything I was supposed to do. I came to a complete stop, rested, let the lady go. I went, and then I looked over, and they were just there. I went as fast as I could, tried to get around, but I couldn't get away from it. I just couldn't. And I think, well... It's going to be fine. It's just an inconvenience. It's no big deal. So I get um, home and, you know, I call, I do all the photos, I do the traveling stuff. I, I get the insurance. And, and, and the funniest part was I went up to, the, the young girl came back and she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. And I said, um, call your parents. She goes, yeah, I, I did that. I said, oh, I'm, you know, I know this is, I, we have boys. We've had wrecks in our family. I said, was this your first wreck? She goes, no. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> so anyway um, and so then I, then I started thinking like well this is weird maybe your mind I, my mind is I'm like did I do something wrong maybe not there but am I out of God's will somewhere have I sinned and not known it am I am I actually not living the way God wants me to because I haven't had a wreck in two decades ten, ten, at least ten years and not my fault, but it happens anyway. You see how that works in your mind? Like, like, like some big spiritual game of Jenga. Like what, what's loose, right? No. And then if I'm not careful, right, that's not just. It's not right. It's not fair. And then I think, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not fair. That's not just. Right? Little children whose homes are being bombed with airstrikes because their, their governments don't agree with where they live. One's in Yemen, one's in Palestine. Right, so, I mean, my stuff's tiny. Your stuff is probably, it's big to you, that my stuff's big to me, but 
on the world scale? And, and if we don't doubt that that's a problem, then we're not thinking, we're not even awake. We should go like, how's that happen to the innocents? Happened in the Bible, it happens today still. I have doubts. What, what's happening? You see, everyone, including the disciples and the most famous Christians, have doubts. They always have. Now, you're going to know who said this. You just don't know that you know who said this. Um, but this was a quote that came out after this person passed away. Here's the quote. My God, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart, afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, if there be God, please forgive me. And when I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there's such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I'm told God loves me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great, nothing touches my soul. Y'all know who wrote that, right? You know her. In the middle of serving the poor in Calcutta, these are the words she writes. You see, her doubts don't stop her faith. Her doubts don't stop her service. Her doubts don't change her changing the world. She changes it right in the middle of it. And you can too. You don't have to worry about your doubts. God's got you. Keep going. Even in your doubts. But why do we? Why do we doubt? Why, would, why in the world would Mother Teresa doubt? I mean, she's the one we look to for a lot of us. Like, that, that's a good person. I remember I was, just started preaching as a senior pastor when she and Princess Diana both died. Just boom, boom, together. And I remember thinking, wow, the world just got a lot darker. You know, those two women did some amazing things for our world. Well, so why do we doubt? Well, we doubt because God doesn't do what we want him to do or what we would do, right? If I'm picking people to die, it wouldn't have been Mother Teresa. I, I know some people that I would prefer, right? <laughs> Trade them out. Because we have an end in mind, don't we? God isn't doing his job because it's not how we would do it. It's not that he's not doing his job. It's not that, that we've forgotten our place. Right? That somehow we think we're on the throne, which would make us God, not God. Fame Perkins, who's a New Testament professor at Boston College, she writes it this way. She says, a prayer, friends, is unanswered only if we have dictated the answer in advance. Faith is not dictating the response to God. That's not faith. So, and we also doubt because we tried religious stuff and it didn't work. We really tried it. Somebody said, go to church. We went to church. Our marriage still failed. Somebody said, take communion every time you do. We did. We did it. And my kids are still on drugs. Somebody said, join a small group. I did. They were terrible. Or maybe they were great. But this thing I've been wrestling with didn't change. That's real life. That's real life. Doesn't mean it won't ever change. Doesn't mean God's not at work. But you don't get to play religious stuff, right? It's not incantation. We don't do that. That's witchcraft. You can't say certain things and make God do stuff. Then you would be God. You see, we doubt sometimes because we're surrounded by people who doubt. Pastor Robert shared last week, you know, this is really the first time in our country's history where Christianity is a minority. I mean, barely, but not in the majority any longer. So, so the more we run with people outside of here, it's likely that maybe they don't have faith. Maybe they doubt everything. And if you're surrounded by doubt, you can begin to doubt. 
And sometimes we doubt because God speaks a word that we don't want. Or we don't, I mean, we don't hear it, or it's different than we expect. But we don't know what to do with it because that's not what we want. And we also doubt because life's complicated. I still don't know what to do about peanut butter. Yeah, you eat it. But here's the thing. In, in seminary, you know what I learned? That most of our peanut butter comes from multinational corporations that buy land, whose government steals it from the people, gives it to the multinational co- corporation because they can do it cheaper there than here because of wages, and then they basically rape the land until it's not worth anything. They give it back to the family, and they can't grow a thing on it. And I get peanut butter cheap. But I don't know what to do about that. That's super complicated. Right? I can't go in there and change the government and change the, the whole... I mean, I don't know how to do that. But I, I know it's not fair, it's not just, it's not right. So what does the Bible say about doubt? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about doubt. It's throughout the Bible. And the first thing I want you to know, if you don't remember anything else, know this. Doubt doesn't disqualify you from being blessed. Say it with me. Doubt doesn't disqualify you from being blessed. It doesn't. It doesn't. If it did, you'd never... Even know of Abraham and Sarah. You would know about Gideon. You would know about lots of lots of folks in the Bible. So in this scripture that we read today, we find a father who is at his wit's end. He has tried everything to help his son to no avail. And a man out of the crowd, this father, he answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought my mute son made speechless by a demon to you. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, goes stiff as a board. I told your disciples, hoping they could deliver him, but they could not. So here's the thing. The guy goes to where Jesus is supposed to be. Jesus isn't there. Where's Jesus? He's on the mountaintop with Elijah and Moses and a few of the disciples. So he comes looking for Jesus, and all he gets is us, his followers. Right? And the disciples, they couldn't do anything about it. Look what Jesus says. Now, I'm not sure whether Jesus is talking to the Father or to his disciples. I think he's actually talking to his disciples. You know how you talk to people sometimes, but it's not really to them. It's for the other people that need to know, right? This is what Jesus is doing, I think. Jesus said, what a generation. No sense of God. How many times do I have to go over these things, right? Because he'd been up on the mountain. He never asked them to do that exorcism. How much longer do I have to put up with this? He's talking about the disciples, not the Father. Bring the boy here. It's like, enough of this. Bring him here. I'll heal him. We'll get on. So why is Jesus exasperated? Well, because he just came off the mountain where Peter and James and John, he had led them high up on the mountain. And his appearance, this is called the transfiguration. It changed from the inside out, like, boom, right in front of their eyes, like a a sci-fi movie. In his clothes, they shimmered and glistened white, whiter than any bleach could make them. It was Elijah, the greatest prophet that they knew, along with Moses. There's nobody bigger than Moses in their day. And comes into view in deep conversation with Jesus up in the cloud. These guys had been dead, I mean, Moses for 1,300 years. And yet here he is walking, talking with Jesus. Just then, if that wasn't enough, a light radiated, right? It enveloped them from a deep cloud and, and then God speaks. This is my, say it with me. This is my son marked by my love. Listen to him. You would think the disciples would get it. I mean, this is a pretty powerful moment. And the next minute, the disciples were looking around, rubbing their eyes, seeing nothing but Jesus. Boop, only Jesus. There was Elijah, there was Moses, and then they're gone. And William Barclay, when he writes about this, he says, it was as if Jesus said, I don't know how I'm ever going to change these disciples. I don't know how I'm going to change them. But I can, at this moment, help this boy. 
Let me get on with the present task and not despair the future. Have you ever had that? Things are actually pretty good in your life, but there's just a few people off page and you can't seem to get your head off of it. And it ruins your whole day. And Jesus says, well, no, no, let's get to the business at hand. Let's do what we can do, not what's not yet working. And the father's doubt is caused by the disciples' failure, not Jesus. Woo. Right? The father is in despair because the disciples were trying to do something Jesus hadn't asked them to do. It was their failure to heal a son. And then there was this big dispute that followed about what was going on. And the father, all he wanted was a son healed. He didn't want an argument. He just wanted help. Now, it's worth noting that the disciples were attempting an exorcism that they had not been sent to do. And this was really instructive for me. Some, some people, right, over time, we've been at this about 24 years here. And people ask me, well, you know, Mark, you need to do this. Or your church needs to do that. Or you need to do this. And here's the thing that I learned. If we don't have any volunteers for it, if we don't have any budget for it, we don't have any money for it, we don't have any energy or passion for it, it's not ours. Not ours. Right? We're called to some things, not to everything. Nobody's called to everything. And so sometimes the church gets in trouble when we try to do things we're actually not called to. Because we're trying to be like another church. We're trying to be in somebody's good graces rather than what God's actually called us to do. So, Here's the thing we learned. Doubt and being doubted are common throughout the scriptures. All the way through. In Luke 24, right? This is the Easter story. And there's doubt even in the resurrection story. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they come to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men, angels, in dazzling clothes, they stood beside them. And the women were terrified. They didn't know what to do with it. They, they were doubting what was going on. They bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a good question. They're in a graveyard. He's not here, but is risen. The Easter story. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the 11 disciples and all the rest. Now, who did this? The women, exclusively. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them told this apostles. Only women. And apparently more than these three, even more. We don't know their names. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They didn't believe them. They doubted them, like women. Nope. Now, notice that on Easter evening, there are ten disciples that are surprised and sent out by Jesus. Judas is gone, and somehow Thomas missed the meeting. The scripture says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Sunday, again, this is Easter evening now, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. They weren't faithful, you know, hey, Jesus is raised. No, they didn't know what to do. They were afraid. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That's important. That's important. Listen, he comes into them and the first thing he does is show him his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoice because Jesus knew what they needed and he gave it to them. And they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, again, he breathes on them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, now I send you. Poor Thomas. Have y'all ever used the phrase doubting Thomas? Oh, you don't want to be a doubting Thomas. Well, I mean, what did Thomas do? He missed the meeting. How do you miss that meeting? I don't know, right? You probably missed the email or, or the text or whatever else it is. But for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. And he simply wanted to experience what the others experienced. Thomas didn't ask for anything that the others didn't already have. Now think about that in your own life. Don't you want what other people have? 
And not only do you want what they have, you want it when they have it. That's just natural. So the scripture goes on in John 20. It says, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, he wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his sight, I will not believe. So he doubted. And what did Jesus do? He wrote him off because he had no faith. No, that's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Jesus met him. Jesus came to him in his doubt, in his need, and he's willing to help him. So eight days later, friends, a week later, the disciples again are in the house, and Thomas made it this time. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said the same thing he said a week ago, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not doubt. But believe. Friends, he's not chastising him. He's loving him. He's inviting him into a deeper intimacy with him at great pain for Jesus, potentially. I don't know how much pain a resurrected body feels. I don't know that. Right? I doubt my ability to know that. And what is Thomas' response? It's actually greater than the first ten. He goes, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. That's you and me. We're blessed. Jesus isn't getting on to people. He's like, look, this is so great. Even people who haven't seen me, they're going to get this. They're going to get this. Now, Father Richard Rohr uh, wrote this beautifully. Because so many times when Jesus shows up, we think, oh, there it is. He finally showed up. You know, man, it was, it was terrible until he showed up. No, listen. Father Rohr says, the eight days that exist between Thomas screaming his doubt into the sky and God actually appearing to him teaches that God is in both the miraculous appearance and the eight days of silence. God's in both those places, friends. Never forget that. He's in both places. He's in your silence. He's in your waiting. And he also shows up. Now, you don't know when when is what, but he's in both those places. He is. So faith, when it comes to faith, it's not the absence of doubt. Not at all. Not at all. So, the very last thing we have in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the great thing that the church is to be about. The 11 disciples, right? Thomas is here this time. They go to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Say it with me. But some doubted. But some doubted. Man, those three words give me a lot of hope. But some doubted. And what's it say after that? Jesus goes, well, for those who doubted, you're out. For those who got the first time, you're in. No. He sends them all. And he sends you. He sends all of us in our doubts. But some doubt it. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends doubters to make disciples of all nations. This is where you go, amen, that's me. Right? I, I have work to do with the Lord, even in my doubt. He sends doubters. So the scripture says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But say it again with me. But some doubted. They did. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you don't need to worry about your doubt. It's about me. It's not about your faith. not about your doubt. It's about me. I've got it all, he says. So because that's true, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all of it, everything that I've commanded you. And remember, friends, since I have all power and I'm with you always, to the end of the age, Jesus says, you have nothing to worry about. So this faith, it's not the absence of doubt. It's moving forward with what God is calling you to do. 
even in the midst of your doubts. In the midst of your doubts. Many of you all know my story, and you know that I was one of the most reluctant preachers ever. I'd grown up in the church. I was not a fan. I mean, I, I liked the people in the church, except for the old ladies who were like, Little Mark, you got something on your face. And then I smelled old lady spit the rest of the day. It was gross. And had nothing to do with it. <laughs> really weirded me out. Seriously, didn't want anything to do with that. But here's the thing. Even at my graduation in 1996, and this is my dad, he graduated in 59, graduated in, in 96 there at Highland Park. And even when I got home from graduation, I got a phone call from the Dallas Bureau of NBC News asking me if I would come on staff there in Dallas since I already lived there. Somebody had dropped my name from my previous work life, and I thought about it. I mean, I really thought about it. Are you kidding me? That's what I'd always wanted since the time I was about 15 years old. I always wanted to be in a major city at a major network and do that work. I doubt it. I was like, Minko, Oklahoma, with a two-point charge, with seven in worship, 25 in worship, or the Dallas Bureau with a major network. I, I, I doubted what I should do with that for a little bit. I thought the timing was interesting, for sure. It's interesting, isn't it? So, so often how the devil and the Lord can sound very much alike. So you've got to look at the timing. You've got to doubt, is, is that the Lord? Or is that me? Or are there other forces at work that know some of my deeper desires? You see, again, uh, Reverend Paul says it like this. Jesus never demands we believe perfectly so he can get to work. Jesus is at work. He's at work. Even when you're off page. God is at work even in the midst of our doubt. So in, in 1738, John Wesley was struggling with whether he should leave preaching. And Peter Bowler, uh, a, a famous person at the time, he asked him what he thought. And Bowler answered, by no means, don't leave preaching, John Wesley. Preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, you'll preach faith. Another way of saying this is don't let doubt be a dead end. You're going to have doubt. Don't let it stop you. And Paul says the triumph, Paul Rasmussen says the triumph of my faith is not the absence of doubt. The triumph is our ability to trust God even when we doubt. That, that's what I want you to know. And then we come to this really weird idea that can doubting even be good? Can doubting be good? When, when I was little, um, this is my mom and dad, we had a family campers group. Dad was the family pastor. And we would go camping every month except for like December, January, uh, February. And we would play this game called I Doubt It when it would rain or be too cold. And basically you're trying to get rid of your cards. And, um, you know, being really young, I'd be like five aces. And my sister would be like, I doubt it. Because you can't have five aces in one deck, right? And then that's how the game is played. And so I learned that when you see something really weird, like, I want to doubt it. That's a card game, but it actually has some application. So here's some things that I invite you to think about. Is it shameful for a woman to speak in church? I doubt it. I doubt it. Why? Well, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that in his letter to a particular church at a particular time, women should be silent. They're not permitted to speak. They should be subordinate. Law says so. If there's anything you desire to know, let them ask their husbands. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. We do it all the time here. How's that possible? Well, because we doubt the context is exactly the same. That Paul's writing a letter 
It would have never dawned on him that he was writing scripture or that somebody 2,000 years later would try to live into what he said to a certain church in Corinth that was first century with all their culture. I mean, he would have never thought of that. Doesn't mean that we don't have a lot to learn in Corinthians. There's a lot of things to learn in Corinthians. We need to study it hard. But study it well and in context. In the first century culture, right, Paul also writes that a man dishonors Christ by worshiping with his head covered, and a woman dishonors both her husband and Christ by worshiping without a head covering. So, lady, wear your hats. Right? And, gentlemen, you, you got to take your hat off, which we still do in our culture, right? You take your hat off when you pray, you take your hat off. Well, except not if you're in Jerusalem, right? If you're, if you're at the wall, you got to put your hat on. So which is it? Is it hats off or hats on? Depends on where you are. Depends on the context. Depends on the culture. Do you see this? So what do you do when the Bible says two different things? Well, you got to doubt which one it is and go with it. Right? And and so they all have their head coverings because it's his bar mitzvah. Right? So Paul, Paul writes about this. Any woman who prays and prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It's one and the same thing as having our heads shaved, right? Don't cut off your hair, Paul writes. It's all in this cultural piece of how are we going to witness to our world. And, of course, the the worst ones that you know of, we're not supposed to own people ever. We're not to beat people ever, right? But slaveholders did, I mean, they, they quoted the Bible verse by verse. The slave who knew his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. Say that with me. Will receive a severe beating. That's in the Bible. And Jesus said it. But he's telling a story that's completely pulled out of context and used to oppress people for hundreds of years. You should doubt that scripture because it doesn't sound like Jesus does it. So you've got to put it in its context. Friends, even the best biblical scholars disagree at times on the right English word. To convey a Hebrew thought or Aramaic or Greek text. They're not all the same. They're just not. So if you haven't taken a disciple Bible study, I invite you to do that. This is a lot of the work that we do from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So here's our action steps. Because there's a lot here. First of all, be honest. Just be honest about your doubt. And share it with Jesus. And one other safe person. Also wise person. But make sure they're safe and then wisdom will help too. And then secondly... Act on the faith you do have and not on the faith you don't have. We all have both. So act on what you do have. God will bless it. God's at work. And finally, I just want you to know that God is at work when you see him when you don't see him. At one of the lowest times in my entire life, I was in ministry. Chantel and I had been in ministry for about a year, year and a half. And it wasn't going very well. We had had John Mark and um, he was well-loved. He was one of the only babies in our town. He was a superstar. And as he got to be about one and a half, people kept saying, oh, he needs a little brother or little sister. I'm like, yeah, we know that. And then the next day, you know, every church we go to, every meeting, oh, you know, he, you know y'all, working on that? y'all working on that kid? What they didn't know is we'd already had a miscarriage between the two. We didn't let them know about it. We felt like we were supposed to be caring for them, not the other way around. We were, I was immature. I was 28, 29. And then, so we, you know, we did everything we knew to do. They kept saying these sorts of things. We had another miscarriage. I was really worried about Chantel. Those of you who have been through this, you know, you know how scary that can be. 
And so, I mean, I doubt it. I'm like, is, maybe I should have stayed in Dallas. I mean, is this it? I mean, is this it? I mean am I, did I make the right choice? What am I doing? And I, I was so, so distraught that on my own, without asking anybody at all, I basically snuck away to Dallas and went to a clergy conference um, at Prestonwood Baptist. I went to a Baptist church. It's a big deal for a Methodist seminary guy. <laughs> and Jack Hayford was speaking at the moment. He's, he's now passed. And it was in a, a prayer time there that it became very clear from the Lord. The word to me was, you will have a second son. Not just you'll have a child, but directly, you will have a second son. And man, it hit me powerfully, but I doubt, I was like, I can't tell her that. I mean, after what we've been through the last two years, I, I just don't know what to do with that. Over time, not immediately, but over time, the Lord's like, yeah, you, you can tell her. You can tell her. And I would love to tell you that everything works out great every time. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But I can tell you, this is one of my favorite photos in all the world. We need these markers of God's faithfulness. We just need them, even when it doesn't work out exactly right or right time or whatever. But, but I, I will never not love that photo. Because of God's faithfulness. And that's why we're here, by the way. To set up altars, to set up moments where you know God has acted. So when you don't have faith, when you doubt, somebody else comes alongside you and has faith for you. And when they doubt, you have faith for them until they have it. So friends, doubt is not the end of faith. Mm -mm. But it can be a starting point and be a really good starting point. That's not the end of faith, but it can be a starting point. It's okay to have doubts because Jesus had no doubt about his love for you. That is for sure. And if anyone tells you otherwise, say it with me, it's just not true. It's just not true. Doubt is not the end of faith, but it can be a starting point. We say that with me. Doubt is not the end of faith, but it can be a starting point. And all of God's people say, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.